Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Well, Miss Lemon, the other folks here say that right before the shot, you predicted Reeves would kill himself. Is that true? Yes. What exactly did you say? Oh, officer, no one can remember anything exactly. I'm in the middle of a very trying ordeal. (laughs) And I've had a few pops. You don't say. Seems sober as a judge to me. Do the best you can. Georgie went up the stairs. We heard him go into the bedroom. We all heard it. Ask anyone. Bill, Carol, we all heard the same thing. We'll get their account separate. Right now, I just want to know what you remember. Well, then we heard a sound. What kind of a sound? Like a scraping sound. Like wood scraping against wood. Like a window opening? No. Well, maybe. I thought it was the drawer opening on the bedside table, but now that you mention it, it could have been the window. Okay, so you heard a scraping sound that was probably the drawer, but could have been the window. No. No? No, it was definitely the drawer. And then I said, he's probably going to kill himself now. But I didn't really think he was going to kill himself. Then why did you say it? It was just a stupid wisecrack. I didn't mean anything by it. We were supposed to get married on Friday. Pretty eerie coincidence you saying he was going to shoot himself right before he pulls the trigger. I hope you're not fixing to pin this one on me. I told you I was down here with the others when it happened. Ask them, they'll tell you. Nobody's saying it was you, Miss Lemon. Yet. But did Reeves seem suicidal at all? Did he ever mention wanting to harm himself? No, never. He wouldn't. We we had plans. His exhibition and the wedding. We were supposed to go to Australia. Well, someone shot him. And if it wasn't him, and it wasn't you, we've got a murderer at large. It was her. I know it was. Who? That cow, Tony Mannix. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're continuing our investigation into the bizarre and mysterious death of George Reeves. The actor who played Superman in the 1950s television series. It's a tragic and baffling piece of Hollywood lore. One that's captured the attention of fans, amateur sleuths, and theorists for nearly 60 years. This is episode two of the investigation into the George Reeves murder. If you missed any episodes, you can find them on iTunes. Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or any other podcast directory, and our website, parcast.com. That's parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. As always, if you wish to subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. A new Unsolved Murders episode is released every Tuesday. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, Parcast, to join the conversation. And now, back to George Reeves. Over the course of his career, he had struggled to become a leading man in the studio system. It wasn't until his mid-30s that he landed the role of a lifetime. Starring in a children's television program as the iconic Superman. Despite his instant fame, Reeves loathed being a television actor. Did you know that I used to go up against Jimmy Cagney and Ronnie Reagan for parts? It's true. I could have been as great as either of those guys. Still could. 
but the studio never gave me a real shot. Well, to add insult to injury, it was a kid's show. The Superman series ran for some six seasons, but production ended two years before George's death. Following its conclusion, George found himself in much the same place he was before it began. Struggling to find his footing in the industry. And Superman had been such a success that Reeves was instantly recognizable, and people had trouble seeing him as anything else. Try as he might, George just couldn't seem to land another part. And so, as the official story goes, depressed and despairing, the frustrated actor killed himself alone in his bedroom. But is that what really happened? In the months leading up to his demise, he had three separate brushes with death by automobile. With all signs pointing to foul play. Additionally, he was getting daily death threats on his private phone line, sometimes as many as 20 in a single day. Someone was terrorizing George Reeves. And someone shot him. But was it the same person? Did he really kill himself? Or was he the victim of a cold-blooded murder? If so, who pulled the trigger? Was it his former lover, Tony Mannix? You'll never get away with this boy. Nobody says no to me. Or was it her husband, Eddie, whose connections to the mob were common knowledge? Don't sweat it, Tony. I'll take care of everything. Could it have been his hot-tempered fiancé, who shot him when one of their drunken arguments got out of hand? God damn it, Georgie. Look what you made me do. Or maybe there's some other explanation for what happened to George Reeves. It's been decades since Reeves died, but time has raised more questions than answers. As we dive deep into the details of the case, maybe we'll discover something others missed. It's worth a shot. George, quit playing. The women are half hysterical. George? Oh, God. The New York Times, Wednesday, June 17, 1959. Hollywood, California. George Reeves, television's Superman, killed himself earlier today. Seconds earlier, his fiancée had predicted his death. Friends said Mr. Reeves, 45 years old, had been depressed because he could find no other acting jobs. In the early hours of the morning on June 16, 1959, William Bliss discovered the body of George Reeves, dead in his bedroom. He was completely naked sprawled on the bed with a bullet hole through his right temple and a 30 caliber Luger pistol on the floor between his feet. The bullet passed through his head and lodged in the ceiling. There was no last words, no suicide note, no message of farewell. Although the house belonged to Reeves, there were several other people in it at the time of the murder. One was his fiance, Lenore Lemon. The others in the house were Lenore's friends, Carol Van Ronkel and William Bliss, the one who discovered the body. The writer Robert Condon was also in the house, apparently asleep in a downstairs guest room. Lenore, Carol, and William had been drinking throughout the night and were all extremely inebriated when they heard the gunshot that killed Reeves. He did it. He really did it. Did what? He's dead. Shot himself right through the head. There's blood everywhere. No! I don't believe it. He can't be. You better believe it. Go up there and take a look for yourself. Bill. What? She knew he would do it. She called it right as it was happening. Gee, I knew he was blue, but I didn't think he'd pop himself. What do we do? I think we have to call the police. When the police arrived, they immediately ruled it a suicide. The cops were ready to call it an open and shut case. George was dead, the gun at his feet, no sign of forced entry, and a room full of witnesses downstairs. But while they were doing a cursory inspection of the room, the police found two additional bullet holes in the bedroom. The bullet holes were fired by the same gun, but obscured by a rug that had been pulled over them. And one of the bullets had lodged downstairs in the paneling around the fireplace. Lenore Lemon took responsibility for that one. 
You admit to having fired the gun. No. I mean, yes, but it wasn't today. I was just fooling around a while ago. A while? How long? I don't know exactly. Last week, maybe? And what about the other bullet? Did you fire that one too? No. I don't know. The witnesses unanimously agreed that Reeves had been depressed. It also must be mentioned that George was a notorious prankster, known specifically for playing a macabre prank in which he would take a certain German Luger pistol, load it with blanks, and fire it at his own head. He would carefully hold it at arm's length to make sure he wouldn't get gunpowder burns on his face. Remember that. It'll come up again later. At first glance, the fact that it was a suicide, even if accidental, was so obvious that the Beverly Hills Police Department ruled it as such and never investigated further. So the body was removed, washed, and embalmed. None of the coroners checked Reeves' fingers for residue to see if he had, in fact, fired the gun himself. Hey, did you swap that guy in two? The actor? What for? Suicide. Didn't see the point. Nor did they examine his wounds to see whether the distance the bullet had traveled before it made contact with his skull was greater than the length of his own arm. No one was worried about tampering with a crime scene because, as far as they were concerned, this wasn't a crime. No one dusted for fingerprints. No one checked inside the gun to see how many rounds had been fired or when. Even a casual fan of any CSI series could tell you that these are pretty basic parts of a police investigation. The shoddy investigation and cavalier categorization of the death as a suicide left some skeptical. Especially George's mother, Helen Basolo. I know my boy didn't shoot himself. I just know he didn't. He wouldn't do that to himself, and he wouldn't do that to me, his mama, his first love. Although it was clear that Helen loved her son, George and his mother had a strange relationship. Shortly after his birth, she left his father in Iowa and married another man in Pasadena, whom she divorced 15 years later. Hi, Ma. George. Your eyes are red. Is everything all right? George, I need you to listen. I have something very serious to tell you. Something terrible. What is it? Where's Dad? You're not going to be seeing him anymore. Where is he? He's dead. He took his own life. And you're never to ask me about him again. Oh, no. Dad. No. What? But why would she lie about that? I have no idea. Maybe she thought it was easier than telling the truth. Well, that must have been some breakup if death was a preferable explanation. Years later, Georgia discovered not only that Frank Basola was alive, but that he was actually his stepfather. Up until that point, George had been raised to believe that he had been his biological father. Whew. That doesn't give you trust issues. I don't know what will. Helen Basolo sought her own version of the truth. She was wholly unconvinced by the LAPD's ruling that her son's death was a suicide. And so she took matters into her own hands. Hello? Hello, is this Jerry Geisler's office? The lawyer? Jerry Geisler was a well-known celebrity attorney. When Helen engaged him, he petitioned for the case to be reinvestigated. But after only a month, Geisler announced that he was satisfied that the gunshot wound had been self-inflicted and withdrew himself from the case. There was a second autopsy, and with the exception of a few unexplained bruises about the head and body, its findings were essentially the same as the first. There's nothing here. The case is full of phony angles. There's nothing else to see. But please, Mr. Geisler, my George may have had a tendency for melancholy, but he wasn't a depressive. Mrs. Besselow, I know you don't want to hear this. It's a difficult thing to hear. But your son's death was a suicide, plain and simple. 
That's pretty unsatisfying. Who conducted the investigation? Milo Spiriglio of the Nick Harris Detective Agency. Nick Harris Detectives actually still exists. No kidding. Yep. It is both a detective agency and a school. Wait, a detective school? That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Established in 1907, it is the oldest private investigation service in the country and has an excellent reputation. Milo Spiriglio. That name rings a bell. Well, that's probably because he handled some pretty high-profile investigations, like the deaths of Natalie Wood and Marilyn Monroe. Well, that's about as high-profile as you can get. That guy must have been good. He was. In the Reeves case, Milo and his top-notch team quickly came to agree with George's mother that the death was a homicide rather than a suicide. I knew it. I just knew it. I knew my baby wouldn't take his own life. So what did Milo uncover that Jerry Geisler and his team missed? Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. When we left off, detectives had just realized that the case was a homicide, thanks to Helen Basolo's relentless prodding. How did they come to that conclusion? Even though all of the witnesses present in the home at the time of the murder were considerably drunk, detectives felt they could rule out suicide based on their testimony. How so? Well, first of all, the absence of powder burns on Reeves' face proves that he didn't hold the gun to his head as the police report states he did. Right up to his temple. Right. For the weapon not to have left any facial burns, it would have had have to have been at least 18 inches away from his head, which is a completely impractical way to shoot yourself if you're trying to commit suicide. But not if you're faking it with a blank, as George liked to do. Mm, fair enough. But consider this. When Bliss discovered Reeves' body, he was lying on his back, and the single shell was found under his body. Okay, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Don't self-inflicted gunshot wounds typically propel the victim away from the bullet casing? Mm, that's exactly right. So it couldn't have been a suicide. The physics of the scene just don't work out. Ah, now you're thinking like a detective. Spiriglio went over the details of the case carefully, specifically the Beverly Hills police report. The initial one completed on the night of the murder. In that report, the fatal bullet wound was described as irregular. Well, that's a pretty non-specific detail. Yes, but it led Spiriglio in the right direction. Detectives at the agency reconstructed the bullet entry and exit. The slug had passed through Reeves' skull and was lodged in the ceiling. So the bullet went in and up? That doesn't make much sense. It would mean that at the moment of impact, Reeves' head would have been twisted, making a self-inflicted wound highly improbable. So the forensics can help tell us what didn't happen, but can they tell us what did? Based on his findings, Spiriglio suspected that an intruder had entered Reeves' room. 
When George returned unexpected, they struggled for the gun and Reeves was shot. The intruder then escaped from the house undetected. Interesting. But I thought that that particular gun was normally loaded with blanks. Apparently, yes, that was customary. Okay, so how did a real bullet get in there? Well, maybe that was the intruder's plan all along. He or she broke in to secretly load the gun. But when Reeves unexpectedly returned to the room, he discovered the intruder holding his gun, the two struggled, and George Reeves was shot dead. Well, that seems plausible, if pretty unlikely. Well, there's one last discrepancy with the police report. It states that Reeves pulled the trigger of the gun with his right hand. Let me guess. He was a lefty. No, not exactly. Remember how George had had a few incidents with his car in the weeks leading up to his death? There were three. Two trucks tried to crush him on the freeway. A speeding car nearly hit him. And then somebody drained the brake fluid and caused a crash. Yeah. Well, during that third accident, George was injured pretty significantly. His Jaguar collided with a brick wall in the Hollywood Hills. And Reeves' right hand was hurt so badly that he filed a personal injury claim with the Los Angeles Superior Court for $500,000 in damages. So if his right hand was disabled, he couldn't very well fire a gun with it, could he? That's the theory. But what about that boxing match with Archie Moore? If his hand was really injured that badly, he would have had to call off the fight. Mm, Maybe. Of course, there's always a chance that the personal injury claim was just a cash grab. Even so... All of this conflicting information proves that the case deserved further investigation. Unfortunately, the Beverly Hills PD chose to ignore the Nick Harris findings. And when Helen Basolo died in 1964, she remained convinced that her son had been murdered. Well, if George Reeves didn't shoot himself, who did? Maybe it was his fiancée, Lenore Lemon. It's always the significant other. Lenore was a popular suspect with the public. As the daughter of a successful Broadway ticket broker, she was an outsider in Los Angeles. A New York socialite who had dropped into George's life very suddenly after his split with Tony. Lenore's marriage to George would have been her third. She previously had been married to musician Hamish Menzies, as well as Jacob Webb. Webb was a descendant of Cornelius Vanderbilt and faced bigamy charges after marrying someone else while still married to Lenore. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Lenore certainly would have had the means to kill George, but did she have the motive? It's true that Lenore had a well-known history of violence. She was hot-headed and had a tendency to get physical when her temper was up. The case against Lenore theorizes that her drunken fight with George got out of hand and she shot him in the heat of the moment. More than one source reported that she and George had been fighting earlier in the night. Can you please just sit down for one minute? You're pacing around like a goddamn caged animal. I feel like a caged animal, locked up in this little dump in the middle of nowhere. I feel like a prisoner of war. There are a million girls who'd be happy to trade places with you. And at least half a million with better manners. What do I need manners for? People like me the way that I am. I'm fun. I'm exciting. You're a boring star chaser. I should have left you where I found you, sniffing around at that cantina. We see your kind all the time, you know that? It's depressing. You know what's depressing? Watching a second-rate actor turn into a has-been right before my very eyes. Face it, Georgie, you're washed up. You might as well end it all now before you depress us all to death. Why don't you go kill yourself? You better hope I do that after the wedding, or you won't get one red cent. (laughs) 
I don't need your money. You don't even have any. The only thing you ever had was your looks and your fame, and soon enough, both will be gone for good. You're going to regret saying that. It is suspicious that she called George committing suicide right as it happened. Why would she do that? Well, maybe she knew something that we don't. The official story told to the police was that Lenore was downstairs with the others, but hearsay from Reeves' friend and colleague Fred Crane put Lenore either inside or in direct proximity to George's bedroom. Mm -hmm. Now that changes things. It sure does. According to Crane, Bill Bliss had reported that after the shot rang out, Lenore came running downstairs asking her friends to cover for her to the police. Tell them I was here. Tell them I was here. Well, it could have been easy for her to replace the blanks in the gun with actual bullets. She had access to the gun and even admitted to having been messing around with it. But that doesn't explain the angle of the shot. Even if she and George had been struggling, he was a big man, an expert in boxing and martial arts. It's pretty unlikely that Lenore would have been able to physically overpower him. She wouldn't need to overpower him, just angle the gun enough during the struggle that it would strike him when she fired. That might account for the strange entry and exit wounds. Okay, but what about all of those other witnesses? Everyone's account puts Lenore downstairs at the time when the gun was fired. They were her friends. Why wouldn't they protect her? They were also three sheets to the wind. It's hard to call their testimony reliable. And they waited 45 minutes after hearing the gunshot and seeing George's body before they called the police. Because they were coming up with a backstory? Possibly, but it's nearly impossible to say. Statements made by witnesses to both the police and the press essentially agree. No one apologized for their delay in calling the cops after hearing the fatal shot. It was late, they were in shock, and they were all apparently very drunk. The police said that all of the witnesses were extremely inebriated. So much so that it was difficult to obtain a coherent story from any of them. All right, Bliss, you're up. How did you know the victim? They asked me how I knew. Mr. Bliss, please. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Go on, Bliss. My true love was true. <laughs> Cripes, how are we supposed to get a straight story? These three can't lay down without hanging on. Let's try the Danes. Excuse me, ma'am. Mm -hmm. I need to ask you some questions. Mm -hmm. How did you know the victim? I guess this means no kangaroos, huh? Kangaroos? We were supposed to go to Australia. I wanted to pet the kangaroos, but now we can't, because George is dead. Go in the kitchen and put on a pot of coffee. They're going to have to dry out before we can get anything done. Hmm, so all we have to go on is a bunch of half-remembered witness accounts and one incredibly flawed police report. Either a lot of people at the Beverly Hills Police Department were really bad at their jobs. Or someone was trying to brush a murder under the rug. Well, both scenarios are possible, but the fact remains that the details of George Reeves' death remain a baffling series of contradictions. There are some theories that are related to the incidents in George's car that could explain the shooting. Such as? Well, some have suggested that the car accident that nearly killed him had left George with permanent brain damage and that he killed himself while high on painkillers. Do painkillers make you suicidal? Aren't you just more likely to fall asleep? Well, another popular theory had him playing a game of Russian roulette with his trusty Luger. Fuzzy or not, that doesn't seem to add up with the other details of the night at all. Reeves had an argument with his late-night visitors and then went up to bed to play Russian roulette alone in his room. Not to mention, Russian roulette is played with a revolver. That's right. You need a chamber that revolves in order to spin it. The Luger doesn't have a spinning chamber, so it's impossible to play a roulette with one. Either you're planning to use the pistol to fire a shot, or you're not. There's no element of chance. 
Well, what about Bill Bliss or Carol Von Ronkel or the writer Robert Condon? There have never been any accusations against any of the other house guests. Well, we know that Bill, Carol, and Lenore were all drinking together, or at least they all claim to have been. But what about Condon? Condon's alibi appears to be that he was sleeping at the time of the murder. But as you might have guessed by this point... Well, the accounts conflict and it's hard to get a straight story. Some say he was having an affair with Carol Von Ronkel, which is why she came to the house in the first place. If she came over to see him, wouldn't they have been together? One would imagine, but they could have been lying about that to protect their own reputations. Some accounts put him in a downstairs bedroom of the house. Others put him in the living room with Carol, Bill, and Lenore. What about motive? That's where the Condon theory falls apart. He didn't know Reeves very well, and it's extremely unlikely that he would have had any feelings about him strong enough to serve as a motive for murder. But wasn't he working for Archie Moore, George's opponent in the scheduled boxing exhibition? Yeah. What's your point? Maybe he was there to take out the competition? Archie Moore was the longest reigning world light heavyweight champ of all time. Do you think he hired a writer to kill the out-of-work actor he was scheduled to fight in an exhibition match? Mm, yeah, when you say it out loud, it does sound pretty silly. But what about someone else entirely? A home invasion gone wrong. Of course. Stranger things have happened, but I'm going to say that's probably not what occurred. I feel like we're getting further from the mark. So let's talk about... Tony Mannix. Now we're getting somewhere. What makes you say that? Because Tony had the beans and the motive. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue our story. Tony Mannix and George Reeves had been together for eight years when he broke up with her. Isn't it just a gorgeous day, George? Uh, oh, yeah, it's pretty. Why so glum, my boy? Listen, Tony. I've been thinking. Well, there's your problem. You must stop this instant, and all of your glum feelings will float away on the breeze. I mean it, Tony. I don't know how to say this, but... Oh, George, this sounds serious. Don't keep me waiting. I don't think we should see each other anymore. What? I'm breaking it off. May I ask why? It just doesn't feel the way that it used to. It doesn't feel right anymore. What about what I feel? Of course I care about what you feel, which is why I had to say something. While we're saying things, let me say this. No one says no to me. Not even you, George Reeves. Tony, please, let's be adults here. Adults? Don't throw away eight years like it meant nothing. Nothing! How could you even consider doing this to me? You selfish, ungrateful... Can I interest you in the dessert cart? We have a lovely meringue pie. Uh, just the check. Please. This one's on you, my boy. Better get used to buying your own meals. She took the split to heart. And bear in mind, the harassing phone calls and the near misses George had in the car occurred in the months after their breakup. It does seem like a terrible set of coincidences that the guy who just happened to have escaped death by automobile multiple times over the course of several weeks would then turn up dead. Mm, if it quacks like a duck. <laughs> So assuming that Tony was behind the incidents with the car... And the numerous harassing telephone calls threatening George's life... Is there any evidence that puts her at the scene? Well, not exactly. But there are some suspicious details that indicate Tony knew more about George's death than she let on. In the early hours of the morning of June 16th, Phyllis Coates, the actress who played Lois Lane in the Superman series, said she received a phone call from an extremely agitated Tony. <sighs> Hello? Phyllis! He's dead! My darling boy is dead! Tony? Who? George? He's gone! Murdered in his bed! 
Tony, what are you talking about? Are you sure? Who told you? I just know it. He's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Oh, what will become of me? Later, Coates wondered how Tony knew so early and with such certainty that George had been killed. What's more, not long after Reeves' death, Tony returned to the Benedict Canyon house with Jack Larson, who played Jimmy Olsen in the series. Larson says he discovered Tony tacking pieces of paper over the three bullet holes in George's room, a devout Catholic. Tony claimed to have been saying little prayers over the bullet holes. That's certainly unusual, but I don't see how that necessarily connects her to the murder. Larson claims that Tony was quiet for the remainder of their visit until they got in the car to leave. You doing all right there, Mrs. Mannix? As well as can be expected, I suppose. I never would have believed that my love affair would have ended in tragedy. Uh, well, one never does, do you? Tragedy isn't the sort of thing anyone anticipates. Again, that's an unusual thing to say, but there's no question that she was upset and emotional about losing George. There's nothing about either of those statements that points any suspicion in her direction. Well, in late 2006, Beverly Hills publicist Edward Lodzi gave an interesting story to the Los Angeles Times. When Tony was a widow nearing 80, Edward Lodzi became a close friend. According to Lodzi, the aging Mrs. Mannix continued to worship Reeves throughout her life. She kept her closets lined with his clothes. She kept his shaving stuff and lotions. She had an honest-to-God altar at her house with his picture on it. A great big 11 by 14 inch photograph, right smack in the middle of a bunch of candles and a freaking crucifix and everything. She was obsessed. Lotzi said that as her health deteriorated, Tony grew terrified of her soul going to hell and made a startling confession to her priest. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My husband and I, we did something terrible. You know that God, in his infinite mercy, forgives all manner of sins. But I don't deserve God's mercy. I... We... We killed George. George Reeves. Eddie and I had him killed. And now I'm damned to spend eternity in hell. Lotsey happened to be visiting Tony at the time and held her hand throughout the confession. Afterward... The priest turned to him. You cannot say a word about this to anyone. Your life would be in danger. A publicist was a witness to Tony's deathbed confession. You don't buy it? Well, it's incredibly convenient, especially for the publicist. Well, Ochi's account of a bedside confession is not much to go on, but Tony does still make the most sense. Even if she didn't kill George herself, I'd say the chances are pretty good that she had a hand in it. The motive is clear. She was upset that George had broken up with her. And she was married to a guy with underworld contacts. Bingo. The Mannixes were the kind of people who could have someone bumped off if they needed to. And there was all that business with the cars and the phone calls. And the fact that there were real bullets in a gun, typically loaded with blanks, indicates that there was some sort of sabotage planned. Sabotage executed by someone who knew George well. No one could match us. No one. We were like Anthony and Cleopatra, Romeo and Juliet, the real deal. We belonged together. If he wasn't going to be with me, he wasn't going to be with anyone. Well, what about Eddie himself? We know he was okay with the affair while it was going on, but what about when it ended? Was he avenging his wife's broken heart? I'm glad you brought him up. Why is that? Because the gun that killed George Reeves was registered in Eddie Mannix's name. Wait, that seems like a pretty obvious piece of evidence. Well, yes and no. 
1959, Tony, Mannix, and George had been carrying on their affair for nearly a decade, and Tony paid for everything. Which really means that her husband, Eddie, paid for everything. Exactly. Tony had been an actress and a dancer in the Ziegfeld Follies, but she hadn't worked in ages. Eddie was the source of income in the Mannix household. Major income. And although his role as Superman brought him international fame, Television was far from a lucrative medium. George wasn't making nearly enough money to support the kind of lifestyle he and Tony were living in throughout the 50s. Everything in the Benedict Canyon house, including the home itself, was funded by Eddie Mannix. So it's perfectly reasonable that the gun would have been registered in his name. Exactly. On top of that, Eddie was well aware that George and Tony had been involved for years, and Eddie's fondness for George had been well documented. Why would he shoot him now? Because George broke Tony's heart when he called things off. Eddie was avenging his lady's honor. There's something to that. I still don't think it was Eddie Mannix. But Eddie Mannix was one of the most dangerous men in Hollywood. And his underworld connections were well known. He's an obvious villain. Well, it's true that at one time Eddie could have gotten away with murder, and most likely did. But that would have been at the height of the studio system. By the late 1950s, the system was cracking up, and no one, not even a guy like Eddie, could afford to be careless. Careless. If George Reeves really was killed, the murder weapon was found at the scene of the crime, right between his feet. Oh, yeah. That is a big mistake. Eddie Mannix was a professional tough guy. Someone who made a career out of cleaning up celebrity scandals. Leaving a gun registered in his name at the scene of a murder is such a glaring, obvious mistake that it's incredibly unlikely that he would have done it. Unlikely is one thing. But I still don't believe that it rules him out entirely. I am 99.99% that it certainly wasn't Eddie Mannix. How can you be so sure? George Reeves was killed in his bedroom on the second floor of the house. Yes. By 1959, Eddie Mannix was bound to a wheelchair. Oh. So even if all the witnesses were inebriated, there's no way he could have gotten in and out of the house without someone noticing or helping. I see your point. However, I believe it was both Mannixes. They had the means and the motive. Tony could have ordered the murder, and Eddie's men carried it out and hushed it up. Tony, it breaks my heart to see you like this. I know it's wicked, but I just wish I'd never met him. I wish he had never been born. I just want him gone, wiped clean off the face of the earth. Then I might feel better. If you're serious, you know I still got ways of making that happen. Just say when. I'm as serious as I've ever been in my miserable life. I'll make the call. That does seem to make the most sense, based on what we know. But the fact of the matter is that we never will, because in 1961, George Reeves' body was exhumed and cremated at his mother's request. And whatever evidence remained was lost to history. Join us next Tuesday as we look into the unsolved murder of Julia Wallace. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening and hope you'll join us again. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If the kryptonite doesn't get us first. 
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Jay Silvers, with production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Lauren Cannon and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Michael Malconian, Stephen Pinto, Greg Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>